Hey guys, welcome to the Fellowship Greenville Students Podcast. This week, Matt Densky continues our series, Relationship Goals, where we'll talk about friendships, dating, and marriage. Matt talks about dating again this week and talks through four categories. How do I find the one? Overprayed or never prayed? How far is too far? And singleness. Matt uses scriptures from Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and 1 Corinthians to bring us back to what God's Word says regarding these topics. We hope you enjoy this message. Guys, welcome to our, uh, welcome to FGS, man. We are excited you're here. I'm super excited you're here. I am pumped for what God has in store for us tonight. If it's your first time ever or first time in a while or you're regular, welcome, welcome, and welcome. My name is Matt Dinsky. I'm the student ministry pastor here at Fellowship Greenville. We love you. You belong here. We're excited you're here to worship with us and learn with us from God's word. We have been in a series uh, entitled Relationship Goals. And the whole series is not about romance or dating or intimacy, although there's a lot about that. Um, but the first week we kicked off about foundation stuff. Before, before it's you and them, it's you and God. And then after it's you and them, it's still you and God. And so what are some foundational things in our relationship with Jesus that we need to figure out and nail down before anyone else comes into our life? And then the following week we talked about friendship, what is a good friend, how to be a good friend, how to look for a good friend. They're exceedingly rare. We think we have really good friends when in fact we don't. We just kind of have like eh, seasonal friends. So what is a good friend? And then last week we started talking about dating. Yes, yes, my inbox blew up over the week. Um, I had a lot to say last week, and, and hopefully you were blessed. I, I had a great time going through some of that. We talked through the cultural view of dating, these kind of like four things. I don't know if I'd give this a title. It'd be kind of like the flow of dating. Culture presents it, you know, you're attracted, then you start talking, and then it gets complicated, and then you're just physical, or those things get out of order. That's kind of how culture presents it. I talked through four things I think biblically we could kind of present as a flow of dating. And then tonight, because I just, I had so much to say last week and I didn't get to wrap it up, tonight's dating part two. So buckle up, <laughs> buckle up. If you came here last week and you're like, whew, I'm glad that's over, <laughs> you might not be glad because we're gonna continue the dating train, all right? Uh, the hard thing, the hard thing to, to do when you talk about dating, we gotta understand, like here's the caveat, here, here's the little disclaimer. Dating is not biblical. Like dating is not biblical. It's not anti-biblical, like it doesn't go against the Bible, like oh you're dating, oh sinner. Like it's not, it's not like anti-biblical, but it's not biblical. Like you can't just go to the scriptures and be like, here's a case for dating. It's just not there. In fact, dating as we know it in our culture is less than 100 years old. It's, it's new, like how we go about relationships in many ways is kind of this really ill-defined new thing uh, that never before in history has happened. Uh, the introduction of, of technology has really amplified kind of how we approach relationships, right? But it wasn't always like this. There's not really a biblical case for, hey, here's modern day dating in America. Let's turn to second fall in love, you know, like chapter one and look at this thing. It's just not there. And so we kind of have to base our understandings ab about maybe God's ways and his word on biblical principles. The scriptures in and of themselves are a love story. In fact, one of the most common uh, comparisons that we find in the scriptures is that, is that Jesus is the groom and his people are the bride. And so the scriptures are a love story. There's tons to say about love. God is all for love. There's love stories within the scriptures. You have Adam and Eve, you have uh, Abraham and Sarah, you have uh, Isaac when he sees Rebecca, you have Jacob when he sees Rachel. I mean, you just have these fascinating love stories going on all throughout the scriptures. Last week we were in the Song of Solomon, which is pretty spicy. <laughs> I got a little hot last week. God is all about love and intimacy and romance. And you know, it, it saddens me and it pains me because I think one of the things that, that's happened, it, it's kind of this twofold approach. One is, I, I presented this last week. I, I believe that culture has hijacked and redefined what love is, what dating is, what the intimacy is, and for the most part, we've bought in. And that's, that's sad um, because I, I don't think that's true. The, the other thing that's kind of going on at, at a dual layer is I think the church, 
not this particular church, but the church, like the global church, but particularly the Western church, America and other Western, Westernized countries, have, have kind of like demonized dating and intimacy and romance and things like this. And, and we put a lot of parameters and taboos on things and we make people feel exceedingly guilty uh, for pursuing relationships, or we put so much pressure on them right away, like, oh, you guys are holding hands? Has he proposed? Like, we just do these, these weird, like, extremes. It's either incredibly wrong, or you guys should already be married. And it's just like, dude, what does the word of God have to say about love and, and romance and intimacy and sex and, and passion and love stories? And I believe the word of God has tons to say. In fact, I think God is the champion of these things, and I think his view and his way of actually approaching love is so much more rich than what culture presents it as. The sad thing is the church has kind of come along over, over the years, centuries, and, and kind of made this very stiff and pious and like you have to wear a collar to love Jesus and to love a woman. You know, like it's like, dude, can we just get to the scriptures and see maybe what God teaches on these things? So when it comes to dating, please understand it's not biblical, but it's not wrong. And so we kind of have to build our case through a variety of principles in the scriptures. And so tonight, you'll notice that. We're not gonna be in necessarily one passage of scripture. We're gonna be jumping all over the place because we've gotta build on principles, not a passage. There's no passage about dating in the Bible. So we've gotta look here and then look here and then look here and then look here. So if you guys are ready for that, I would love to jump in. You guys ready? Fantastic. 10 of you are. This section, this section, yes, thank you. Hey, I will give it to you though. I do admire consistency and the weekly like silence when I'm trying to hype you guys up is, is nice. You know, I really, I, I, it makes me feel good about what I'm saying. All right, here we go. So if you guys saw, who, who saw the Instagram story about the four things I'm gonna be talking about tonight? Okay, about half of you. Here's where I'm going tonight. I'm gonna give you the four. I'm gonna give you the flyover, ready? How do I find the one? That's where we're gonna start tonight. Yeah, look at that. It feels good to even see it on a screen, doesn't it? It's like, ooh. <laughs> maybe, maybe United Night Valentine's Day, I won't be wearing white, hmm. All right. How do I find the one? We're gonna, we're gonna talk about this tonight. Next, I, I wanna talk about over praying or never praying into your relationships, into your dating relationships. All right, I, I can't tell you, all, all four of these things tonight, by the way, are based on probably the most common conversations or questions that I get asked by students, by the next generation or young adults or whoever about dating and relationships, these four things. Overpraying, hyper-spiritualizing your relationships to the point where it's like, dude, you're not the Pope. Like, just go talk to her, man. You know what I mean? Like, or just never praying, never inviting God in. I wanna talk about that tonight. Number three, common question. How far is too far? Yes, we're gonna talk about this tonight. So if you're not ready to talk about sex, you might want to leave because <laughs> we're going to talk about it. <laughs> Stop, please. How far is too far? I get this all the time. I get this all the time. It's a common question. And in some ways, I think it's a fair question. You're trying to explore this, this question um, in, in maybe an appropriate way, but maybe for some others, it's like, dude, how much can I do? And Jesus still smiles. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so let's talk about it tonight. And then number four, I wanna talk about singleness. Hello, can I get an amen? <laughs> I knew, somehow I knew. I'm gonna pose the topic of sex and I think they're gonna kinda of slightly cheer. I'm gonna pose the topic of singleness and I'll get a roar of cheer. Somehow I knew. This room likes singleness. I feel very supported. All right. So let's start, how do I find the one? How do I find the one? So this is a <laughs> classic question. Uh, we've kind of bought into this idea as a culture, you've gotta understand this is not original to our culture, this, this dates back, but it kind of finds its origin in, in this idea that at some point uh, man and woman were combined and then they were separated and now we are missing our other half. And it is our role in life to find this other half, this the one. And so we have this longing and yearning in our soul and in our body to find our missing half. Anyone ever seen the movie Jerry Maguire? It's an oldie but a classic. I'm talking to the wrong room. <laughs> Three of you. Wow, four, okay, I see you. Yes, not even the young adults, no? 
Rachel, that's sad, because I've recommended it, and that hurts. Okay. <laughs> Trinette, yes, yes, thank you, Trinette. Okay, there's a classic scene. Trinette, you know where I'm going with this. Classic scene. They're in the elevator. Jerry Maguire is dating, um, what's her name in real life? Come on now. Renee Zellweger? Wigger, Renee, it's a hard last name. <laughs> Renee Zellweger. Winger. Winger. Sure, why not? I'm just going to say Renee Z. Okay. Jerry Maguire is dating Renee Z. I can't remember her name in the movie, but I remember her real name. Tom Cruise is Jerry Maguire. Okay. They're dating. They're in this elevator, and this couple comes in, and the couple is, is deaf. And so in the elevator, they're signing to one another, and the character who plays Renee is, is watching them sign, and Jerry Maguire doesn't know what they're saying, but Renee does. And when they leave the elevator, she says to him, they, they just said to each other, you complete me. I know, I know. You can say, I like, mm. <laughs> well, I just want that, man. How do you find the one? So later in the movie, spoiler alerts, by the way, but I really don't care because three of you have seen it. The rest of you, by this point in your lives, are like, I'm writing that movie off, dude. Like, I don't even care, man. Over the movie, uh, Jerry Maguire and Renee uh, start dating and they get married way too quick and then Jerry kind of has these commitment issues and he kind of tanks his own marriage and pulls out and the story is the story of redemption. And then one night he decides, I've got to tell her how I feel. I blew it, but she's my girl, she's my honey boo, she's my my boo thing, like she's my lifelong. I got to go tell her. And so he goes to her house and in her living room, there is a meeting going on of a ton of women divorcees, women who have been hurt and like have left their husbands or their husbands have left them and they're bitter about dudes and they hate dudes and they're just gossiping and they're fuming with each other. Men are the problem, like classic scene, man, classic scene. And he steps into this scene and he's like, oh boy. And he says, I- I'd like to speak to my wife, please. And, and she like stands up and like doesn't move. And it basically becomes this thing. He says, all right, if this is where it has to happen, this is where it has to happen. And he launches into this speech about how he loves her and he wants her back and all this beautiful language and poetic things. And he ends it with, he calls back to the elevator scene. He says, you complete me. And tears are flowing. Everybody's feeling it. The women in the room went from hating men to, oh, this man is what I, like, like, You complete me. It's that idea that has crept its way into our minds and we kind of believe it and we wonder and ask ourselves, how do I find the one? And the idea of the one is somewhere in this world, I have to find the one person that completes me. Now I'm sorry if what I'm about to say is gonna pop your bubble on the idea of love. But I've gotta tell you, because I love you. There is no such thing as the one. That was your bubble, and it popped. Some of you seem encouraged, others of you seem angry, I don't know. Some of you are like a deer in the headlights, like, mm, do I love him or hate him for telling me that? There's no such thing as the one. All right, I wanna, I wanna pose this idea out to you. In a world with a population of over seven billion people, and I get, okay, not all of them are edible, not all of them are your age, not all of them are your type. Let's just narrow it down. Let's say you've, you've gone through the ranks and you figure out, okay, out of seven billion, 100 million could be compatible with me. One of them's the one. How are you gonna sort through 100 million people in your life, dog? Like, what kind of dating app you got going? Like, it's called Turbo Tinder. It will find you the one. Like, brrr. no, man. And furthermore, the, the, the premise of the one is predicated on the idea that everyone throughout history up until this point has gotten it correct. In other words, think about this. Let's say you end up marrying someone that's not the one. Well now you married them and so the person that was supposed to marry them can't marry them and so now they've gotta marry someone else who wasn't their original the one and now this person isn't gonna get married by the, their original the one, so they've gotta settle. And so all of a sudden you have this domino effect going all throughout history. Are you telling me that everyone in history up to this point has actually found they're the one and has not messed this thing up? Come on. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you, Tommy. My man, Tommy knows. From the back. <laughs> Come on now. Really what we say when we, when we say, you know, how do I find the one is, How do I find that person who, yeah, completes me? There is some merit to that. 
But how do I find the person I'm going to be with forever? That's really what we're getting at. But we, we kind of narrow it down to the one. I don't think there's a the one. I think you have many that you could be compatible with. And as you explore those relationships, one of them will end up being your the one. But there's not only one. Can we agree on that? That's a very dangerous way of, of thinking about it. You're going to get locked into a lot of weird, like, oh, they didn't have this, they didn't have that. And in fact, that's what gets created is we start to create what I'll just call the shopping list, Right? Now, everybody in this room knows what I'm talking about. Guys, do not fib. Do not look at me and say, hmm, shopping list? No, I don't do groceries. What are you talking about? You know exactly what I'm talking about. Every dude who's ever had a sleepover, gone to his boy's house, has kind of like shaped and reshaped his shopping list. Man, if I could just find a girl who has. If I could just find someone who is. It's a shopping list. Girls, don't be sitting here like, hmm, tell him that. You know you do that too. Y'all pretending. Yeah, get the boys, Matt. No, you do it. We all do it. We have shopping lists. I want them to be, ooh, I want them to be good looking. But not so good looking that they're like vain and arrogant and conceited, you know? Just kind of like good looking enough where everybody else thinks they're good looking, but they don't know that they're good looking. So there's like this humble good looking going on. That's what I want. I want them to be smart, but not like so smart that they insert themselves into every conversation and correct other people. Like that's annoying. I just want them to be so smart that like, sometimes they say things and you're like, how do you know all this, right? Like, <laughs> I just want them to be that smart. <clears throat> I want them to have money. Like I don't want them to be so well off that they're like absurdly rich, you know what I mean? Like one of those people, it's like, oh, your fifth car. <laughs> but I want them to have, I want to be comfortable in life. I want to have some money, you know? I don't want to like struggle for Wi-Fi in the McDonald's parking lot and things like that. I want them to be funny, like, you know, wit and small talk and banter. Like I want them to, to be very funny. I, I like a guy who can make me laugh. Humor is so important to me, more than looks, in fact. I, I, I find humor very important, but I don't want them to be so funny that it's like they can never be serious, you know what I mean? Like those guys, they're just always cutting up, but they never know how to like quiet down, you know what I mean? And then we even start to get into like really, some of this is hitting home with you guys are like, how does he know my list? Has he read my diary? <laughs> yes, <laughs> your parents send me screenshots of it every day. And then we get into like really, really petty like nuances too. Like the broad categories all of a sudden start to get really petty. You know what I really want is someone who's like, I don't know, like six foot between six foot 2.3 would be great, would be great for me. Like that's the height, especially when I have heels on, like it works in flats and formal, you know what I mean? Like it's just the perfect height. How does he know? <laughs> Guys, we're there too. Like we, we talk about the dumbest things like, oh man, I love a girl with an accent. You know what would be great is if she had like this weird little accent. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Like if she was from Australia, that would be great, but understood American culture so that we don't clash. So we create the shopping list. We create the shopping list. I'm gonna give you some of the best advice I could ever give you tonight. Throw out the list. Get rid of it. Do away with it. Because the reality is, if you're waiting on the one and it's based on your list, you will live your life alone forever because no one exists based off the list you have made. No one does. We treat relationships like we're going into a subway. Yeah, I want this bread with that meat, that cheese, those vegetables. Yeah, banana peppers, ooh, feeling spicy today. We like, we like work, we like work this this thing together based on all the options and then we go down and we expect to have it handed to us. Relationships do not work that way. The list does not exist. If we're really honest, somehow we form like this perfect person, this, this like Frankenstein, all these parts but they look great type person and somehow we ignore all the flaws that we have and then we don't have any grace on the flaws that they have. Oh, that would hurt. And we just expect to find someone, the one, based off this list that we've made, 
which is really a hodgepodge of all these different images of people or influencers you've seen through social media, through Hollywood, or, or in your school. Like, they don't exist. Come across this interesting story recently. 2008, Match.com. <laughs> Ew. Match. In 2008, Match.com hired a new chief of algorithms. Fancy. What's your job? Chief of algorithms. What do you do? I don't know. <laughs> like, all right. Because Match wanted to understand something. They had begun to notice that uh, people would put in all these preferences on Match.com. Like, oh, I want this, I want this, I want this. The shopping list. They put in all these preferences. And then if they ever got matched with someone who had a large majority of those preferences, they would never make it past the first date. Ever. And Match.com hired a new chief of algorithm because they were like, man, something's not working. Can you figure out what the problem is? And this person came in, this specialist came in and basically told them there is no connection whatsoever between a person's preferences and a person's habits. In other words, people will claim, yeah, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this. But when it comes down to it, the people who they're compatible with and the people who they have longevity and relationship with are usually people that are nothing like who they think they want to be with. Go around and ask married people in the room, hey, are you with, did you marry the person that you thought you would marry? Most of them will say, no, dude. It's like the opposite of what I thought. When we get locked into the list, you're gonna miss out on real people because you've created a fake person. So basically, uh, dating websites and all those have basically done away with the algorithms now. They pick that up. They're like, yeah, these don't work. So Tinder, for instance, billions of swipes per day. Tinder, for instance, has, has basically uh, limited their whole process down to two things, looks and charm. How hot are they? And how did they make me feel in that first impression? Looks and charm. And if you recall my, my sermon last week, the culture's presentation of attraction, that's basically what culture pushes. Hey, looks and charm, man, looks and charm, looks and charm, looks and charm. And that's how we're grading compatibility now. But there's a couple of problems with this. There's a couple of problems with this approach. I would suggest there are two problems. One, this mentality is, like pretty much everything else in our culture, consumeristic. It's all about you. Who do I want? What do I want? How do I want them to look? How do I want them to behave? What preferences do I have? You create this fake person and then no one meets the standard. It's incredibly consumeristic. You've basically degraded a human being down to a list of your preferences and then deemed them worthy enough for you to date. You're consuming instead of contributing. You know you're not perfect too, right? Like you know you have flaws. You know you're not everything on someone's list. And guess what? That's okay. Because you're a real person. List people don't exist. Real people do. And real people understand, I'm not trying to get in this life and find someone who has no baggage. I'm trying to find someone who I can carry their baggage while they carry mine. Because we're gonna honestly and openly admit we got some issues. Stop waiting on the one Stop being a consumeristic dater. It's all about me, it's all about me. Like, how can I get more out of this? If that's your approach to dating, I promise you that'll carry over into marriage, and I promise you that marriage will fail. Because marriage is not based on consumption. Marriage is based on contribution. A lot of people think marriage is 50% of this person and 50% of this person equaling 100% of this relationship, no. It's 100% of this person and 100% of this person giving their all to each other. Sacrificial love, knowing how to lay down your own preferences and rights and desires for the sake of the other, and they do that to you. That's love. That's when you're a contributor. Consumerism is all about you. Contribution is all about the relationship. The second problem with this thing, this shopping list mentality, finding the one, is that we really don't know what we want. Like, you think you know, but dude, come on. Like, next week when the new trend pops and, like, there's some, like, new look that's all the rave, you're going to be, ooh, that's the top of my list now. Like, come on. We don't know what we want. We think we do, but we don't. And this is not, like, my opinion. 
because you're teenagers, you don't know what you want. Like this is, I'm talking science. Like chemically, your brain is not done developing until you're in your 20s. Like there are still many chapters of self-discovery about you that you have to learn. And that's not a knock on you, that's just how God made you. And I tell students all the time, look man, between the ages of 18 and 24, you will learn so much about yourself that you don't know right now. So please don't get locked into this idea like I already know who I am, I already know who I want. Like no, we, we really don't. Time and time again, we, we've seen this. The shopping list doesn't work, waiting on the one doesn't work. So at this point in the sermon, you're like, Matt, man, uh, this is pretty heavy, dude. I'm not feeling good, like you're beating me up a little bit. I get it. I get that it's heavy. So what's the solution, Matt? Do you have like any <laughs> suggestions for maybe how we should approach it? I do. I do. Here's what I would say. I would say, and I, I kind of mentioned this a little bit last week, but pursue character over characteristics. Like so many of us pursue characteristics. How do they look? How do they act? Do they make me laugh? What's the charm? How do I feel? Those are characteristics. And those aren't bad to desire. In fact, if you know yourself well and you know you have preferences, okay, like sure, you can have preferences. I'm not saying you can't. But when you pursue those, it's like I've got to find this person. All of a sudden you're going to miss out on some really, really great people. Pursue character over characteristics. Character. All right, so let's take a look at a few, at a few verses here. Uh, the first one, I, I think, is pursue someone who believes in Jesus. Now, obviously, I'm teaching from a Christian standpoint, unapologetically. I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I think he's the best. I think he offers the best life. I'm teaching, yeah, Jenny Ann. I'm teaching from his word, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach from that perspective. But I would say pursue someone, find someone who believes in Jesus. Let's take a look. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Some of you might be familiar with this verse. Paul's writing, and he's writing about relationships. Not just romantic. This is actually much more broad than dating. But he says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Please notice, he does not say yoked. He's not talking about eggs. I just want to scramble myself with someone. Mm. Like, Paul's not talking about that. I've heard people say, I've heard people say yoked and think it's about eggs. It's not about eggs, okay? He's talking about <laughs> something much more attractive, farm animals. <laughs> Back in the day, a yoke is this big piece of wood and it had these two neck holes and you would put two animals of the same kind in them and they would walk in a circle and it would typically spin a mill that would, gr that would grind grain, flour, corn, things like that. But if you had like an oxen yoked here and like a donkey yoked over there, <laughs> donkeys <laughs> like feet are gonna be off the ground, man. Like it's an unequal yoke, the oxen's huge. You gotta bring that sucker way down to get it on the oxen. He's much more powerful. That poor donkey's gonna get whiplash in two seconds. And Paul's whole analogy here is he's speaking to believers in Corinth and Corinth was like the Las Vegas of the New Testament. All right, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. In fact, True story. In fact, slang for, for a prostitute was a Corinthian. Oh, she's a Corinthian. Like, it, it was slang to be a prostitute. Like, super sexualized city in the New Testament. And Paul's saying, listen, listen, listen. If you want to honor Jesus in your romantic relationships, and broader than that, but I'm going to just lock it into romantic, then don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Paul is not and I've heard people preach this passage and take it way too far. He's not condemning, like he's not saying, hey, if they don't believe in Jesus, they're a bad person. <laughs> like he's not doing that. In fact, I think Paul would say, and I would even echo, hey, if, if you're in this room and you don't believe in Jesus, I'd give you the same advice. Don't date someone who does believe in Jesus. It will spare you a lot of pain. The whole principle of this verse is, is not about like, oh, you're bad because you don't believe in Jesus and I'm good because I do believe in That's not the principle. The principle is, where does your allegiance in life lie? Like you will eventually hit places in a relationship that's like, how do we argue? What are the value systems of having conflict? What are the value systems of spending money? What are the value systems we have of spending time? What is your family's baggage that you're bringing into the relationship? What's my family's baggage that I'm bringing into the relationship? What are your insecurities? What are mine? Have you ever thought about future stuff? What about marriage? What about kids? What are the values we have for raising kids? If you are not in the same allegiance to King Jesus, your value system will be incredibly different. Paul is trying to spare a lot of people a lot of pain. 
I mean, you've, you guys have heard it probably. Ah, oh, we just grew apart. We drifted apart. We fell out of love. Yeah, I bet you did because you weren't on the same path to begin with. You had incredibly different trajectories. One is allied to Jesus and the other is not. Of course, you're gonna feel that tension. And Paul is saying, hey, listen, don't get into this uneven, uh, permanent tie with someone. The allegiance of your heart and the allegiance of their heart is not the same. It will hurt. And so one of the pieces of advice I would give is find someone who believes in Jesus. If you do, find someone who's got that equal yoke, your partner, your pair. The second thing I would say is find someone who pursues Jesus. Now I know you're thinking, wait, isn't that the same thing? No, because in America, and especially Southeast America, Bible built, church on every block, it is so easy to say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus. Got a little cross around my neck, got a little cross tattoo even though I'm under 18, <laughs> rebel. Like, it is so easy to say, no, I believe in Jesus, and so easy not to pursue Jesus. And I hear it all the time, girls, come on, you know you've been there. Yeah, but he's got such a good heart, and I could change him. <laughs> he just needs someone who believes in him. He needs someone good in his life. No, he needs to be a man and pursue Jesus if he's claiming it. You can't change him any more than you could save him. And if the king is the only one who can save him, the king's the only one who's gonna change him. It ain't coming through you. But we get into these ideas, I, I, could, I know he's not really following Jesus, but I could help that. No, listen, relationships usually start out on their best foot. You know this, right? Like people usually present their best self. In the beginning of the relationship, that's typically as good as it's gonna get. If it's bad in the beginning, it's not getting better. Find someone who pursues Jesus. Let's take a look at some character verses here. Psalm chapter one, verses one through two. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Notice the, the transition, the, the progression. First he's walking, and then he stands, and then he sits. This is this, is this uh, Hebrew poetry of painting this picture of someone who's like dabbling in sin, and then starts to really participate in sin, and then actually falls into multiple sins. Walking, standing, sitting. Blessed is the person who doesn't do that, but delights in the law or the instruction, the word of God, and on this law he meditates day and night. Ladies, find you a dude who is about Jesus and his word and his spirit and his presence. Yes, find you a dude who will worship with you in the car, blasting some lights or graves into gardens as you're eating your Taco Bell, okay? <laughs> find that man, hang on to him. Ladies, here's a verse for you. Proverbs 31, verse 30. Charm is deceitful, beauty is in vain. Holla, whoa, looks like the Old Testament writers understood what 2021 was gonna be like. Remember the two things that dating apps have boiled down to, charm and, and good looks? Charm is deceitful, beauty is in vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Character, pursue character over characteristics. Find someone who Believes in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, find someone who pursues Jesus so that you can pursue him together. It will save you so much pain. Stop looking for the one and just start pursuing character. If you're not compatible, then call it quits. But eventually you'll find someone who you are compatible with and you'll take it further and further and further and you realize, hey, why don't we spend the rest of our life together? That would be great, all right? So there you go. Number two, that's how it works, by the way. You wanna get married? That'd be great. All right, here we go. Uh, I, I'll talk about this one. I, I gotta, I'll try to move kind of quick. Overprayed, never prayed. This is the next category. All right, again, I'm speaking from a Christian standpoint. I gotta talk to the Christians in this room who super spiritualize, hyper spiritualize everything, okay? You guys start to get into this relationship and you're like, or not even into the, you're attracted to a girl, right? You just like pause, I gotta pray about it. And that's good, like I don't wanna knock the fact that you're praying, okay? <laughs> and that's what I say, man, is this dude a pastor or not? <laughs> I love prayer. But it's like, dude, I gotta, I gotta pray to God if I'm supposed to talk to her. If she comes in the room tomorrow and she's wearing a yellow shirt, I'll talk to her. Like, dude, stop all that nonsense, please. Because you know where it's gonna lead you, and I'm so sorry, but I gotta step on a few toes. You know where it's gonna lead you. Eventually, you're gonna go up to this, this girl. I'm gonna pick on the guys. Eventually, you're gonna go up to this girl and you're gonna say something like, I think God is telling me that we're supposed to be together. 
And one of two things is going to happen. Number one, like straight up creep, like, dude, uh, I wish he'd told me, but he hasn't, so please leave me alone. (laughs) The spirit's in me, and I don't hear him, okay? One of two things. One, she's going to be weirded out. Number two, because she loves Jesus, she might actually submit to the idea that maybe he is speaking to you, and I just didn't hear it, and so through guilt, because of her love for Jesus, she's going to submit to this idea, not through attraction to you, but guilt. You don't want that. Please stop hyper-spiritualizing relationships and over-praying and over-praying. God, God is leading me to you. God told me to talk to you. The Spirit spoke to my heart. Stop. If he did, great. Then just go talk to her. You don't have to preface it with some theological listen. I was praying to the pneuma. That's the Greek word for spirit, by the way. <laughs> and he told me we're supposed to be together. Like, don't. You don't have to do that. If you feel God's leading, act on his leading. Take a risk. Put yourself out there, risk, the, risk the, the, the fear that you have to get shot down. It's okay, you'll get rejected, that's fine. But please, please, please do not over-spiritualize. Because you know what also happens once you start dating and you get past this like romantic and you know, fluffy phase, you, you then reach this place where you're like, ooh, I don't really wanna be with them. And because you played the God card in the beginning, you're about to play the God card again, you're gonna go and you're gonna be like, I just don't have a piece about this. Oh, you mean you want to break up with me, but you're too passive aggressive to actually deal with the conflict and you don't have, want to have a real conversation with me, so you'll play the God card. Cool. Don't do that. Please don't do that. Men, let's be men. Let's be clear in our intentions and direction. If you like someone, if you feel God's leading, great. Pray about it. Pray it up. But you don't have to play the God card. Complicates it, puts way too much pressure, way too much guilt, way too much like confusion. Just be clear. And then the other category would be like never prayed, right? So you don't invite God to it, into the relationship at all. You just pursue someone. Like, oh, they hot. Let's go after it. Like, oh, oh pause, homie. Like maybe, yeah, ask Jesus about this first. There's a, there's a strong difference between over-spiritualizing and then never even including God. Typically when you never include God at all, the relationship becomes aimless. It has no direction no traction, no momentum. You kind of date forever. You've turned dating as the means of transportation towards the destination. You've turned dating into the destination itself. Eventually, it's like, man, you guys have been together like five years. Are you ever going to ask her to marry you? I don't know, man. We're trying to figure it out. What? Have you prayed about it? No. Okay, well, (laughs) try it. Please don't turn your dating relationships into an aimless pursuit, an aimless thing. Uh, if you're not ready to date, that's fine, but don't waste someone else's time. So here's some principles in this, all right? Uh, in dating, I think there should be a pursuit. There should be a pursuit. We're gonna return to our old favorite book after last week. Some of you guys were like, I'm gonna start reading my Bible. <laughs> you went right to Song of Solomon. This thing is steamy. We're gonna go back to Song of Solomon this week. Let's take a look at Song of Solomon again. All right, Song of Solomon, chapter one, verses two and four. This is the woman. We read some of this last week. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Woo! For your love is better than wine. Hala! Your anointing oils are fragrant. Dude smells good. He's not wearing axe. <laughs> Just gonna throw that out there. He smells nice. Your name is oil poured out. Again, poetic language. Your name is oil poured out. Your your character. People speak well of you. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. (laughs) What a claim. (laughs) The virgins, they love me. (laughs) Then she says, draw me after you and let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. This is the woman speaking. Draw me after you. Call me out. I want you. The woman in Song of Solomon is way more sexual than the guy. <laughs> way more. Draw me out. And, and <laughs> I love you, Tommy. And look at his, uh, look at the response, uh, chapter two, verse eight. Uh, Behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. So he, he reciprocates. 
She says, call me out, and he runs towards where she is and says, come away with me. There's this reciprocation. There should be a pursuit. If you are in a dating relationship and there is no pursuit, it's just stale, it's stagnant, you got together because it was over-spiritualized to begin with, there's no pursuit, there's not getting to know one another, there gotta be a pursuit. There has to be this mutual pursuit. Next, there should be a direction. Dating is not the destination. Song of Solomon, chapter three, verses six through 11. I'm just gonna read uh, verse 11 real quick. Go out, daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of of the gladness of his heart. And so their whole pursuit led to, guess what? A wedding. It had a direction. There should be a pursuit of one another and there should be a direction in the relationship. In a romantic relationship, every step you take should either lead you towards marriage or away from marriage. Maybe the relationship's not working out and you're obviously not compatible and it's just really not working, so it should move away, call it quits. Or you're working through your stuff and and you're really trying to make it work, you're committed to one another, but it's moving you towards, it should never just get to this place where you're not pursuing one another, it's become over-spiritualized or under-spiritualized, God's not even in the mix of it, and it's got no direction. Healthy relationships, uh, romantic relationships are either moving towards or away from marriage. All right, number three. How far is too far? All right, we'll talk about it next week. See you guys. No, I'm just kidding. You guys are like, no, skip the first two things. Just talk about this the whole night. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to, I'm sweating already, man. I'm gonna try to do this well. Okay, how far is too far? Let's look again at our favorite book of the Bible, Song of Solomon. Um, just a few references I wanna throw up here. The, the woman, again, I said it just a minute ago, she's way more sexual than the guy in this book. Her writings are very... Uh, romantic and passionate, thank you, erotic, things like that. And three times in the book, chapter two, verse seven, chapter three, verse five, and chapter eight, verse four, she says this phrase, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. In the Old Testament, they didn't have the grammatical rules that we have in Hebrew. Like there's no exclamation point. And so the way that they would emphasize things in the Old Testament was either through certain words or repetition. And whenever you see something repeated, especially three times, it's like she's saying bold, highlighted, underlined, italicized, exclamation point, exclamation point. Like it's her way of saying this is important. And the woman in this book, for, for as passionate as she writes and she's expressing all these desires, she's simultaneously saying, don't stir up love or awaken love until it pleases. Three times, huge exclamation points, huge bold, huge underline, highlighted all over the place. So I'm gonna reframe um, the question. The question is not how far is too far. The question should be not how far can we go, but when should we start? That's how she frames it in this book. Song of Solomon is this Jewish writing about a king and this servant girl, this, his bride, and it's a writing of erotic poems to one another. And that's in the Bible, how awesome is that? And in this book, she paints this picture. Not how far is too far, not how, how much can we do and Jesus still approves. Like what are we allowed to do in this thing? Cause you know, we got some cravings, dog. Like, her, her question is reframed like this. Not how far can we go, but when should we start? And her advice is, don't start. Don't stir up love. Don't awaken love until it pleases, until it's ready. Well, what does that mean, Matt? Like, what is she saying there? What she's saying is, unless you're ready to bear the weight of being physical in your relationship, unless that relationship is ready to bear that weight, then do not be physical. And if we're gonna take God's word and submit to God's word, not consider it, but submit to it, then God's word says marriage is the context for being physical in a relationship. And I wanna spend a minute here because all throughout, uh, not all throughout history, in recent history, I, I think the church has done a really poor job at talking about sex and sexuality. 
And the way you've typically heard it talked about probably is through a lot of negative or critical uh, rhetoric or, or sayings like, oh, sex is bad. Oh, sin. That's wrong. Don't do it. And I, I get where they're coming from. But if we have a theology of pleasure, like if we build a theology of pleasure based on the scriptures, you go to Genesis, he makes Adam and Eve, they're standing in front of him, and the first thing he really tells them together is, hey, go have sex. <laughs> like, some of you are like, whoa! <laughs> God says, be fruitful and multiply. Go have sex. I've created it for you. It's meant to be pleasurable in this context. I delight in it. Like, I don't think there was a point when God looked down at the garden and was like, what are you doing? Like, he's <laughs> created this. He's the author of pleasure and sexuality. The church, the church is kind of, the church has really allowed culture to define it as this really inappropriate thing and, and without rules and parameters. And so we've come behind it and said, ah, oh, bad, 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 bad. But we need to redeem the idea. God is the author of sex and pleasure. He delights in it. He's the champion of it. He made it. Go and do this. This is what I've created you for, except, 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 except in the context of marriage. Why? Because God's holding out on us. He doesn't want us to have fun. No. It's just the opposite. He wants you to have all the fun. Sex outside of the covenant of marriage will destroy you. And God loves you so much that he doesn't want you to be destroyed. Now, you may not buy that because you're like, bro, uh, I think it's fun, not destructive. And I, I get where you're coming from. I want to go to... Um, I want to go to the New Testament real quick. I want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, Paul is teaching on sexual immorality to Corinth. Again, remember Corinth is like the Las Vegas of the New Testament. Prostitution everywhere. And so the, this idea had crept into the church that your soul and your body are two separate things. And your soul is really what's spiritual, like your inner being, that's what's spiritual. Your body well, that's just physical. You can do anything you want with your body. It doesn't matter because it's our soul that goes to heaven, right? Like that's the idea that crept into the church. It's still very much alive and well today. The idea of dualism. Paul comes along. He's got a few things to say about this. First uh, Corinthians chapter six, verse 12. He's quoting what the Corinthians are saying. All things are lawful for me. He said, yeah, that's true, but not all things are helpful. He quotes them again. All things are lawful for me. Yeah, that's true, but, not, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, stomach for the food. What's he mean by that? Basically, he's saying, look, when I'm hungry, I eat. Because the Corinthians were saying, dude, when I have sexual cravings, I have sex. That, that's their argument. God gave me a stomach. He gave me organs for food, and I'm hungry, so I eat. He gave me organs for sex, and I'm craving. So that was their logic. And Paul is trying to redeem the idea of the body. He says the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body and God, and God raised the Lord and will also raise up us up by his power. He's talking about the resurrection when we live forever with Jesus, we will be in bodies. He says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall then I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to his prostitute becomes one with her body? For it is written, he quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. This is what God told Adam and Eve. The two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one in spirit with him. Therefore, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Interesting way to describe that. You hurt yourself when you live in sexual immorality. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Basically, Paul is saying, you don't just worship God in your spirit, you worship him with your body as well. And he has created your body for sex, that much you got right, but sex within the confines of marriage, because marriage is the only infrastructure that can stand under the weight of such an explosive and passionate and amazing thing that God has created. Outside of the context of marriage, it will destroy you. Why? He says it, because every time you have sex, you become one flesh. That's how God designed it. He tells Adam and Eve, you will become one flesh. This is the Hebrew word echad. Everyone say echad. Very good. Thank you for your consistency, my sections, my silent sections. 
This is the word meaning one, fused together. It can't be undone. God is saying every time you have sex, you are fused. You are giving yourself away to someone. It's the same exact word some of you may recognize from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It's called the Shema prayer. Hear, O Lord, hear, Israel, the Lord your God is one. Echad. God is saying that the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, the way that they are fused together as one is the same dynamic, awesome power that happens when the fusion of a man and a woman become one through sex. Same word, same idea. Paul is saying, don't you understand? Your bodies are created to worship as well. Therefore, don't give away your body. You are destroying your body. Don't stir up love or awaken it until it pleases. So I have three tips uh, to help you here. Three tips. When Paul starts talking about sexual immorality uh, in this chapter here, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality, th- this word, the Greek word here is porneia, and it's where we derive our English word pornography, and it's, it's really this idea, it's like a corrosion, it's a cheap parody of the real intimacy that God has created through love and sex. And so the, the hard thing about this word is it's kind of a junk drawer word. It applies to everything. It's not just about sex before marriage. Paul would be referring to like any type of sexual immorality. So lusting in your mind, fooling around with each other outside of the confines of marriage, sex before marriage, sure. Like, uh, I don't want to get too graphic, but you get the point. It, it's, it's like this catch-all word for all these activities outside of marriage. And so here's three tips for you to not stir up love or awaken love until it pleases. Uh, I would just say this, be where you are supposed to be when you're supposed to be there. This will save you a lot of problems in life, not just with sexual immorality, with everything. Be where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there. I I recalled this story, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11, verses one and two. Uh, Many of you may know the story of David and his downfall with Bathsheba when he lusted for her. Do you know that 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse one begins with, in the springtime when kings go to war, and then verse two begins with, David was in the palace and looked down and saw Bathsheba. In the springtime when kings go to war, he stayed home in the palace. If David had been where he was supposed to be, when he was supposed to be there, this whole downfall with Bathsheba would have never happened. This is a really simple principle of life. Be where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there. Hey, if you're alone with your boyfriend or girlfriend and you're not supposed to be doing that, don't do it. It will save you all sorts of temptation. If you're not supposed to be um, like in the basement with the door shut, don't do it. Just be where you're supposed to be when you're not, uh, when you're supposed to be there. The second tip I'd give you is what Paul says, flee, <laughs> run, Sometimes we treat sin like a marshmallow when in fact it's a rattlesnake. It is not our friend. And we kind of play these games in our minds like, well, if we have enough rules and we like, I don't know, like if I sit three feet away from her on the couch, like dude, I, don't even flirt with the line. It is such a slippery slope. Flee, run, do not even entertain the idea. Get out of the situation if you need to. And then third, I would say, do not date in isolation. What do I mean by that? Uh, The Song of Solomon, again, favorite book, right? Our new favorite book, packed with uh, people who speak into the the relationship between King Solomon and this woman. They're, They're called others or friends throughout the scriptures. But repeatedly, they're saying, we affirm this. We celebrate this. We love this. Your love is good. Like, they're affirming. We live in a time and place in history where our relationships, more than ever before, are incredibly isolated and separated from family and friends. No one has a say into our relationships. Like, very few teenagers that I know are actually asking their mom or dad for advice in their dating relationships. And I get why. I'm just telling you, when you date in isolation, there is no one to give you wisdom from mistakes they've made. There's no one to to evaluate that relationship. There's no one to rebuke you when you need to hear it. There's no one to speak truth or encouragement. There's no one to bring clarity when you're confused. It is incredibly helpful to invite friends and family into a dating relationship. Mentors, hey man, what do you think? Like, am I being wise in this? What would you say to that? Like, constantly. Do not date in isolation. You're setting yourself up for failure. All right, uh, yeah, I'm gonna, I got so much more to say about the whole sexually uh, active thing. I just don't have the time. So we're gonna move. The last one is singleness. I get this a lot. Like, what if I'm single? I'm tired of being single. I'm just not content with being single. Or what if I am single and I am content? Does that make me weird? Like, what, what, like everybody around me is dating. How come I'm not? Like things like that. 
I just want to say this real quick when it, when it comes to singleness. Uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians. We're just going to continue here. Chapter 7, verse 6. Paul says, now as a commission, not a command. I don't command this. I'm just suggesting it. <laughs> he says, I wish all were as I myself am. In other words, single. But each has his own gift from God, one of a kind and one of another. To the unmarried, to the widows, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So look, here's the deal. Biblically speaking, marriage is normal, but singleness is celebrated. Uh, and I, I mean, let me just remind you, Jesus was never married. So if you're sitting in the room, you're like, I'm single and I'm weird. No, you're not. <laughs> the perfect one was single. Paul's whole argument about being single is, if you're single, you can actually focus more on the kingdom of God. So I want to confess to you guys, like when I come home at night, I walk through the door, I try to make it home by 5.30, sometimes it's 5.45, but when I walk home from 5.30 until about 10 p.m., my time is not my own. It's family time. It's playtime with the boys, dinner with the boys, bath time with the boys, bedtime routine with the boys, and then a couple of hours of time with Lauren. That's my boo-boo. And then around 10 p.m., 10.30 p.m., I can decide, do I want to stay up late and have personal time, like pursue my personal hobbies or just chill on my own, watch TV on my own, or do I go to bed now? Like, my time is not my own. Paul, Paul is saying, hey, listen, if you're not married, you can actually spend all this time and energy that you otherwise would have over here on the kingdom. And for Paul, that worked. He was so passionate about his relationship in Jesus, it worked for him. It may not for you. In fact, he even includes some advice. If you burn with passion, then get married. It's better to get married than to burn with lust. And if you think, oh, that's so shallow. No, God has created marriage for sex. That's one of the roles of marriage, and God celebrates that. So singleness is celebrated, and it's okay. Jesus was single. Paul was single. It's okay. If you're struggling with your singleness, though, I would just suggest to you that even if you find someone it will not fill the void in your heart that is searching for contentment. I would argue that only Jesus makes us content outside of relationships and inside of relationships. The danger of feeling the yearning to be with someone, I just wanna be with someone single and I hate it. The danger of, of feeding that discontentment is that we actually buy into the lie, once I have someone, I'll be content. And it just doesn't work that way. Because then once you're together, you'll find other things you're discontent with. So I'm gonna give you some advice that one of my mentors gave me when I was really struggling with uh, singleness and contentment. He told me, he said, Maddie, right now in this season of life, what God has put on your plate every night for dinner is some peas, brother. Some like little green peas. And I was like, I hate peas. He's like, I know. <laughs> but if he's not putting steak and potatoes on your plate, then he's not, he does not want you to have steak and potatoes yet. So learn to be content with peas so that you can delight in what he gives you. And when steak and potatoes come along, you can celebrate all the more. And I would just give you the same advice. Learn to be content with the season of life you're in. That guy or that girl will not fill the hole that you're searching for. Jesus can. And then when Jesus blesses you with a relationship, it's all the better because you've already found contentment in him first. Don't look for the one, look for character. Don't over-spiritualize or never invite God into your relationships, but make sure they have a direction and make sure there's a pursuit. The question is not how far is too far, the question is when should we start? And uh, you notice I left some ambiguity there, I didn't clarify. You're like, well Matt, tell, like, am I allowed to kiss her? Am I allowed to hold hands? Am I allowed, are we allowed to make out? Like, I, I didn't clarify kind of on purpose. I, I would just say this. If you are where you're supposed to be, when you're supposed to be there, and you're not stirring up arousing sexual desires through your activities with one another, you're not being tempted all the time and you just can't contain it so you have to act out on it, uh, and you are inviting friends and or mentors into that and they're approving of what you're doing and you're being honest, I think you're good. But if the actions that you're doing, uh, you can't talk to people your friends or mentors about because you're scared of being honest with them because you know you're living in sin, if you're stirring up sexual feelings all the time and arousing yourselves and just can't control yourselves and if you're not where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there, I would say you probably need to change some things or get out of the relationship.
Is that fair? Like, I don't want to get into this list of like, well, you can kiss, but not, like, dude, you have the spirit in you. If you're sensing conviction, don't do it. And then lastly, singleness. Marriage seems to be the normal. Singleness is celebrated. You can focus more of your time and energy on the kingdom. If God has, has given you this contentment to be single, and if you're struggling with a contentment to be single, I would say, learn to be content with the peas. Because one day God will give you a stake. But you gotta learn the lesson to be content in what he's giving you and when first. Because someone won't feel that. All right, guys, you all been awesome. I know it was heavy, I know it was a lot. Fire hydrant. You guys are amazing. Let me pray for you as we exit tonight. Jesus, we love you. And uh, your word is amazing. It gives us so many helpful principles on romance, love, relationships, and dating. And Jesus, I pray over this room and I pray over this generation. I pray an audacious prayer. I pray we would be a generation that would redeem, would redeem the theology of pleasure. And the idea that God is the author of sex and sexuality and he celebrates it and he encourages it and in fact even commands it. But just within the right time and context of relationship. That we would begin to see God's ways of doing relationships as beautiful and awesome and holy. That they're actually like the most life-giving approaches. The most painless approaches to doing relationships. Jesus, I pray over this room, a lot, a lot of people, a lot of people in stages of lives trying to figure out who they are and who they're looking for. I pray that, Jesus, you would be the center and that you would guide their thoughts and their actions and their hearts. Help us seek you first. Find contentment in you. Jesus, we ask all this in your name. Amen.